Welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective, where we pull all the skeletons out of the wiring closet. This week, we are talking to Bill Yeager about the history of the router. So grab a pile of cookies and listen in as we meld with the finest minds in networking. Well, welcome to the show, Bill. Um, I see that you are sitting, let's see, you must be in California someplace. Is that right? That looks like California. It's a very sunny day. Yeah, it's a very sunny day in California. That's what it looks this like. Is, this is our, our bedroom. <laughs> oh, that's cool. And Donald is sans everything. I know. I don't to deal with this. But I do have to say this is the first sunny day in four or five days here, so. I mean, Donald usually has like um, frogs over his head or something, so I'm, I'm like completely lost without the frogs. Donald, I don't know. Well, I like frogs. Frogs yeah. are cool. I just happened to be at work today. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, Bill, so start back in the very beginning and tell us how you got into networking and, you know, how we got through this whole process of why people invented routers. I mean, you know, radio tells us we didn't need spanning tree because we had routers. So that's your fault. So we can go back and talk about Yeah, I, I think we didn't need spanning tree because we had routers. And I'm not sure why when Sun installed spanning trees and deck bridges, I thought it was the biggest error they made, but it went away. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be way. Trust me, it's still out there. I, I, I do. Oh God, you know, there's no administrative properties at all. Just source, you know, source. Look for the source, body, body, body. It's crazy. Okay. Oh, well, anyway, we had them. First backbone is uh, Stanford. Anyway, okay. Well, let me think where I should begin. All right. Um, it was around 19, at Stanford, we'll talk about it at Stanford. It was around 1979, Stanford. And the ARPANET was actually going to go away for some while, you know, for some time, some repair or something like that. And we had things like Telenet, you know, other things, T-E-L-E-N-E-T, other kinds of uh, ways to communicate. And I worked at... Uh, at, you know, at Stanford, and since where I work, the uh, some same Stanford University Medical, Exper Medical Experimentation in Artificial Intelligence and Medicine. Okay, don't ask me why they say medical twice. Medicine, <laughs> and um, I was on the system staff, and my job was to provide state-of-the-art environments, whatever that might be, for researchers in AI and medicine, okay? And I, I was very open to what I might be able to do, given the new state of the environment. And there were people also that worked um, in Santa Cruz, University of California at Santa Cruz, and they had to carry tapes to our machine room in order to bring their data and then do the analysis on then deck system 10s, okay? Sneaker. You know, with list programs and AI and all that stuff. <laughs> and then we had friends at Rutgers, et cetera, et cetera. So my boss asked me, well, you know something about routing and our networking. I said, well, well I guess. I know what a packet is, more or less. <laughs> he said, I want you to write a program to do the a nice uh, TTY line, telephone line uh, FTP. So I called it TTY FTP. It was written in a language called Mainsail. And Mainsail is a language that came out of Stanford. It was a creation of a computer science student named Clark Wilcox. And it actually formed a company. It was the first company to go through the Office of Technology and Licensing. And we'll talk about this later uh, at, at Stanford. And formed a company called Zydec, X-I-D-A-C. 
which were initials of the founders, all right? And it's, it hung around for about 20 years. And mainsail was quite nice. It was an Algol-like language and a kind of superset of sail, Stanford AI language, uh, very, but very, very nice and very well, beautifully written, modular. You had a bunch of modules, and if you had one module, you could just re, re, you know, just recompile and fix the bug in that, and the modules all linked together. Very cool. So I said, okay, I'll use Mainsail because I can make it a client and a server. And I wrote TTFTP, TTYFTP, and what it was based on, uh, there's something called Dialnet that never made it out of the, <laughs> the yes, Stanford AI uh, sale, written by, uh, then I met Mark Crispin, written by him. So I sort of took and bastardized it, removed a lot of unnecessary chatter, and wrote TTYFTP. And it worked quite beautifully. You know, it was, it was full duplex, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it ends up that one day in 1984, I was sitting with our then new director, Ed Patterman, and he was using a permit on the Max. I said, let me play. I typed Apple P, and the packet information came out. I said, geez, that looks just like what I wrote. I write Apple S and some statistics come out. I said, I, you know, I typed this. So he got a hold of Columbia and yeah, they took TTY FTP and they translated it into and made permit for the Mac for that. Okay. So that's my first uh, network experience. <laughs> I, you know, I, was, I thought, well, this is nice. And then he actually, there was some art of magazine article where they said, yeah, Jaeger did this, blah, blah, blah. And I was happy. And it was actually pretty cool. It was a lot of people used Kermit for many, many years. You know, for just we, they only had they had telephone line modem connections until the network. I, I used Kermit just to like yeah. I did. I brother, <laughs> you guys are cool. <laughs> <laughs> I I didn't use it because <laughs> I was always working on something else. We were working on other ways to communicate at home. I wrote. Well, I'll get to it. But I wrote EtherTip software. You know what they are? You know, you you have a uh, something like a, a sun workstation. Well, sun just just a sun system, all right. Or you have well, actually, we took uh, MC sixty eight thousand board backplane, blah 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 blah. Threw in a bunch of modem. A guy named George Schnurl wrote a bunch of modem connectors. You could put up to eighty modems, and everybody comes into this with their telephones and et cetera from home, and then they can go onto the Ethernet, connect anywhere in the world. And they were used terminals, and they were used at Stanford, really, up, you know, through the, even when I was there, that's, people couldn't afford desktops. So you go in there, and there are all these little terminals, and blah, blah, it's really cool. And you could have multiple connections and all that stuff, okay. So, anyway, back to where we were. Okay, back up again. So after TTYFTP, some guy named um, John Kuntz, who worked at the Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco, needed a way to communicate between our systems in the basement of the medical center in San Francisco. And the connection had to be very strange because it had to go up there to a VAX VMS system, uh, running a yeah, VAX VMS system, okay. It had to, we didn't have any VAX VMSs. And, and, and uh, again, I, I used a kind of corrupted form of dial net for this, but no, I didn't. Actually, I did my own. I, the dial net was too complicated. It had to come into a DEX system 10 and then go over to an, a DEX system 20, then had to go over to a little black box to another DEX system 20 where they run a list, machine, list code. So, so I, so I have a question. Why are IT systems always in the basement? Because it's cool temperatures. I, it's just, it's just. You just said it was in the basement, and it's always in the basement. 
Yeah, it's cool. It's uh, temperature controlled. Uh, not, much, not much foot traffic, you know. Part of this was in the Sonic thing machinery, which is this big glass room. That's where the next system 20s were. And that, unfortunately, was below the med center. And one night someone spilled some fumaric acid into a sink up there. And the vapors <laughs> all seeped it into the machine room, seeped in the machine room. And it burned out all the solids on the core memory. <laughs> How much did they spill? No, I mean, it, just, it, just, it was just vapors. I know. Really vapors. I don't know. All I know is they had this big plastic plastic thing hanging down there in this machine room and deck came in and started soldering. And <laughs> <laughs> wow. at the end of the week, it was working again. So, you know, the, there's a wisdom and ignorance in the same thing, but it was a nicely cooled room. <laughs> so anyway, I had this jury rig thing that, you know, so you could talk to over TTY, over TTY lines, Pacific Med Center and VAXs. I had to go find a VAX, go to, into the OS, and it only had seven bits, so I needed eight bits, so I had to just do a little, you know, remove the mask and just let it so just do an FF mask, you know, body, 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 all that kind of crap. <laughs> but it got it all working, okay. And then Christmas time, 1979, Xerox Park gave a big grant to Stanford. Altos, three megabit Ethernet cable, maximum huge rolls of it, right? Transceivers, which were required at that time, and some BCPL software. And my boss said, well, you're a packet guy. What are we going to do? And we said, well, there's things called gateways out there. Uh, he says, well, we call them gateways, right? They didn't call them routers. <clears throat> So he says, you're going to write us a gateway. I said, yeah. I said, well, let's see. We have to connect the med school to – we were spread around our group, right? The med school to AA and the computer science department. So guys started pulling cables, and they pulled a cable to Pine Hall, and then the computer science guys – so really good guys, a guy named Jeff Mogul and a guy named Bill Nowicki ultimately went to Sun. They pulled them the other way, and then they took care of the AA thing. And they were sort of hacking together, quotes, routers, but they were doing them on, I guess they were doing, they might have been doing them on Altos or on uh, some system using Mesa. So I looked at the code and I said, well, if they have a, a router, I don't have to do much route. And they had Etherdip, basic Etherdip code. And they, but I looked at it and I said, first, there's no operating system. How can you possibly do this? It was, they have some co-routine thing. And I look and, and there is this thing, gateway, G-A-T-E-W-A-Y, squiggle, squiggle, semicolon. Nothing. <laughs> and so I said, well, this is, I like that. Okay. I thought, this is cool. I get to do something from scratch here. And my first thing that I, the first thing I wanted to write was an operating system. And as you know, if you read it, the, the original operating system was not preemptive scheduling. Uh, Donald Sharp, something. Okay. Anyway, I see your name. So the first operating system was not preemptive scheduling. Uh, the one I wrote. I looked at it and I would have had to steal literally the clock, the system clock, you know, do that stuff. And so I decided. So, so it was run to completion. Is that like. A no, 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 no. It wasn't run to completion. So I said, well, in the OS, I will have three kinds of dismisses. First I had, you know, I had a scheduler. I wrote my own schedule and I said, okay, that took a lot. I wrote it several times. It took a lot of, I had a whole summer to kind of make this thing really, really work. Right. So I'd had a dismiss. So dismiss and call me on my next cycle at whatever priority I'm running. I had dismiss and call me back in so many milliseconds, okay? 
depending on, I had three priorities, or I had something called an event dismiss, just see, event dismiss me. And when this little routine is called as routine and it returns true, please call me. So I had those three things. Of course, I had to go in and even uh, the first router, routers were on PDP 1105s. 56K bytes of usable memory. This is not a lot, right? <laughs> and so it was a combination of well, the, the IO drivers and stuff I wrote in assembly language, uh, the OS. I had this very strange idiosyncratic Alan, C, Alan Snyder C compiler that came out of AT&T. It preceded Kerningham Ritchie, okay? And that's the only one we could get at that time. But it had one advantage. I could cross compile on a DEC system 10, 10x system, and then take, and well, we had to go in and make a way to boot from it, but we, you know, the other eight, eight the other uh, 8K bytes in, is uh, is for PROMs in the PDP 1105. So we wrote our own PROMs, put in there a little thing, and you go in and push a button, blah, blah, and it would boot, right, and et cetera. But it was sort of, it was manual. So you actually programmed the PROM and installed it, basically, is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, we wrote programs. I actually had a graduate, I had a graduate student do that for me, Eric, uh, shown uh, it was really funny because the way we erased the problems is we had a light bulb and a can and we put them over on infrared right whatever it was. <laughs> right but it worked and eric did that and uh so we had the problem so we could you know we could actually uh, download the things and then i'd start i got it and i looked at the code that was compiled the, uh, the uh, you know i said good god because you know you have all of these move star register plus plus to star register plus plus, but he would go through a move to this. Then he'd have an intermediate move and all this stuff. I said, this code generator is just broken. So I wrote a new code generator. (laughs) And then I looked at that and I said, I have to use, then I actually took the output optic code and optimized that. So that I ended up reducing it by 30%, which was quite good. You know, so I could actually get this stuff in there. And then of course, how do we debug in those days? Memory dumps. So I had, what I did, we had this, we wrote another piece of code. So if it crashed, I go over and I jumped to address 200 in there, there was a vector because it was PDP, 1105s, everything's there, right? Active core memory. Boom, connect and dump memory. Okay, so I get all the memory dumped. And then I had, all, I had the linker output so I could correlate linker ad- addresses what's in memory so I could write a memory dump an- analyzer. And it was actually quite useful. I mean, that's how you find bugs because you know your code really well, and it usually ends up that there's some you over somebody's overwriting a link in a double link memory thing or something like that, and you'd see text blah 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 blah. And it was a really a, a tremendous amount of work. Probably two. Well, that thing I had PDP 1105s 80 into 81, and then we got towards 81, uh, 10 megabit Ethernet came out. Bechtelstein had his board. 68,000 board right around that time, maybe early 82. We had VAXs running much better, Kerningham Richier C compilers cross, you know, that could actually generate uh, 68,000 code. And then we had 256 K bytes of memory and it just blew me away. I said, what am I going to do with all this? (laughs) Fill it up. (laughs) So so let's back up to the PDP 11 for a minute. I'm going to go back to it now. Let me go back to it. You're running, um, what type of, I mean, are there Ethernet, you're writing PROMs rather than actually having Ethernet chipsets because there were no Ethernet chipsets at that time, right? 
no, uh, yeah, we had uh, we had our own the, the Ethernet boards, the wire wrap guys, you know, body blah blah. Get some from Park that, that were made by our own engineer uh, Nick Mazzotti, so you could just jump in, jump in there. It's all wire wrap stuff. There were no chipsets. Right. Yeah, this is, if you imagine, I don't know if you ever sat down and tried to bug, debug wire wrap stuff with an engineer who's cut his stuff all works. You write a little loop, and I said, good grief, this register is changing. I don't know what I'm doing. He said, oh, no, no, no. I said, come on, I'll just add five numbers and say, oh, it's changing. Oh, yeah, this wire is not right, you know. <laughs> we sat for hours and did this stuff, okay. But, you know, we got them working. And um, so the first protocol routed was Park Universal Packet Pub because that's was for this machines and everybody, even our deck system tens, everybody did pub. And then around night, it was just after September, 1981, when these, uh, my boss went over to SRI, Nick network information center. And he came back with this thing and it had TCP IP, TCP IP, uh, ICMP, oh, I said, ICM, echo and IP. And I said, you know, I looked at it for a while and I said, well, this is a hell of a lot better protocol than pub. <laughs> you know, 32, 32 bits of address space rather than six, 16 bits, right? And so I said, what I'm going to do, I just put in because the way I wrote the routers were very modular. I just plugged in a little ping server, and then the ether tips I could all ping from, okay? Ping actually wasn't called P, IC, ICMP echo, because ping didn't come out as a name until much later. And I just said, oh, I'm going to put some IP router, an IP router in there. Why not? Because I, I had this inkling this is a strange inkling that something good was going to happen with this protocol. I don't know why, but except for the fact that it came out of a, what was then, a, I guess, a, a nascent IETF, and it was public domain. You could use it. Everything else that you ever saw was proprietary. PUP was proprietary. Then it comes down to see, next comes down after PUP, XNS on 10 megabits. Zero Network Services, hell, they had 70 bits of address space absolutely beautiful i mean but proprietary and i said you know and also the other other problem with it is that routing tables in those days took a hell of a lot of memory where it didn't so much with uh with uh the ip or with the pup and memory was still pretty tight in those days so anyway. so, so this so the 32 bit was a compromise between having a really big routing table but yet having enough address space yeah well, yeah yeah but what happened anyway we only had 60 well there's a very funny story about this but we only had maybe in the end 16 to 20 networks at stanford and so i didn't have to worry i had to write i had to do i, I had to do um ip routing was easy because IP routing and PUP routing were the same, more or less, at that time, because they're both, you know, because we had a Class A address, right? So SUMX was 36, and so it was 3644, then we had 16 bits for host, but we only used eight, but I didn't care about the host, because that was all taken care of with ARPs and et cetera, just a network, right? So you had 30, you only had 16 bits of address. Class A. <laughs> for eight hosts. <laughs> well, we had, no, we had, uh, we did, uh, USC did, UCLA did, plus, you know, <laughs> the, the original ARPANET people had Class A networks. Okay. Easy to remember, for goodness sakes, 36, man. <laughs> I still remember all the addresses. Router 36, 44, 0, 0, 0 1. Huh? <laughs> okay. wow. 0, 2, 0, 3, 0, 4. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Uh, 3640, yeah, anyway. No, actually, no, there we had 3640, 3644, 3650. I, we, yeah, we had, because we ended up, we only had at the time 
one, two, in our group, about four networks. Computer science grew on to maybe four or five, but then they started in, in the expanding doubly, but there still weren't a lot of them. I think there's a good story about this, but about 16 to 18. And I turned on the, the one on my system, I think I got up to, I don't know, that was 17 and someone else made an 18. But anyway, that's another story, a very funny story I'll tell later about this. So anyway, so I put an XNS routing. Okay, but then of course, got Texas Instruments Explorers. They come out of MIT and ultimately went down a, I forget, some company back east produced them for a while, but anyway, the Explorers came out of Texas Instrument and they ran ChaosNet. That's ChaosNet, good old, they knew. Perfect name for it, right? Because bytes were backwards, all kinds of stuff like that. And so uh, that was cool. At least in the host net thing, you know, uh, there was a there was an LMI system where actually they put the back packets out backwards, which was very very strange. Okay, but that was only we had to get to that too ultimately. But that was I don't know why they did this. There was some we had some little thingy that they had something that could reverse that. It was strange. But anyway, that, that's MIT. You know, the keyboard. You know, it took had to be able to play Franz Liszt on a piano to reach some of the keystrokes. I mean, it was you know, control shift delete. Return. <laughs> but the OS was magnificent. I did a lot of uh, common this program actually later on. And uh, great language, you know, the object languages, et cetera, et cetera. And anyway, so we got all those. And then we had PUP, IP, XNS, and ChaosNet by, that was probably late 83. All done, done on MC68000s. Uh, and then the, the, I did a reroute, rewrite of the routers to improve the code, get rid of it. I had too many if desks. So I got rid of all that stuff, made it more, you know, made it nicer, easier to boot. The next thing we actually put in there, guy guy knocked on my door from Cisco, 1984. His name was Bill Croft. And he was really mad because he didn't get enough stock when Cisco went public. Okay, he said, I, I got 16,000 shares, I deserve more, you know. He's one of the early employees. He said, well, will you hire me? I said, what do you know about? He says, well, I'm really into, into Macintoshes and networking and stuff like that. And uh, we were all, there were a lot of little Macs around and we were heading towards, well, we were heading towards some workstations at that time, but there were students were getting Macs. You know, they were expensive, but we got them inexpensively because of the relationship between Sun, between the Stanford and uh, Apple. And, you know, they had their little uh, twisted pair network back there, whatever it was. I don't know. It was something like 256K bits per second, whatever. They had that. And so what Bill invented, first of all, was a kinetics box. That was an Apple Ether gateway. Okay. And then after that, he got together with a guy, Rosen something, Stein or somebody, whoever wrote uh, Boot Pete. And he wrote boot P. So I, I said, I, while he was writing it, I was putting it in the routers because boot P is how things, it's a nice way to boot things. You could go out, you could have like these, all this stuff. Because the problem is in general broadcast world, other people would just sneak copies of the router code and stick it over there, right? And pretty soon, <laughs> you could watch, then they would be dry rot because they wouldn't keep them updated. And so with boot P, you had total control all of that, all of, of that kind of stuff. And we were under the 68,000, you know, and if things crashed, you, really, you just you could restart, go through a vector through something, off you go. 
download whatever, you know, download new versions, et cetera, et cetera. So that was cool. Okay. So that's, that was the only other changes I really made. I did make a lot of changes to the router because we didn't really go to Cisco until 1989 when they finally put ChaosNet in. Because we had, we had this diverse research environment. I had to go in and do a very strange thing. Is that RPC for Cisco only worked on the local net. I, the, I mean, not Cisco. RC, RPC for Sun only worked on the local net. Right, yes. Well, this was screwing us. So I, be, I, I made the router proxy it. I had to, I was one Christmas vacation, I sat down and reversed engineered RPC, saw what it did. And so what would happen is the router, you'd say, oh, you give me the rope, you know, I want to call this, fine. i say, okay, I'll send it to you. But I'd keep a little table in there and I knew where we had, we only had one Sun server at the time. So I had to ship it up there, ship server, back, you know, just a little table lookup, sort of like that, right? Blah, 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 blah. That's probably one of the last changes I actually made and then just maintained them and, uh, then, lo and behold, this was spring of 1985, one of my closest friends, actually, then Bozak, walks in with Kurt Lohe. Did you know, did you know these two guys? Yeah, you know I Kirk? actually know Kirk. I don't know Lynn, but I do know Kirk. Okay, and Kirk uh, worked for Double E, okay? Mm-hmm. And Lynn was, he was the uh, facilities to, computer science facilities director who worked under a guy named Wes Ernest. And so he was responsible for the, in the basement, all kinds of, they had, you know, systems for parallel processing, many, many processors and all that stuff. They had DEX systems 20s, they had whatever sons, they had whatever they needed down there. And so he said, Bill, and I said, yes. He says, Kerr and I want your sources. And I said, why? I said, well, he says, because I want to improve them for Stanford. I said, okay, no problem, right? I mean, I worked on them and I maintained them and if little various changes had to take place, I would make various changes. But uh, mostly, well, you know, the one thing I should say is the routers I wrote would run at bus max speed. That's as fast as they could go. Because I worked like hell to optimize, optimize scheduling, management of, you know, multiple management of the, of the various layers in there. And uh, it was, you know, it, was, it took a lot of work. I, I, all the instrumentation that had first appeared in all those Cisco routers was mine. I could look at everything, all of the tasks running, how often they're called, what percentage of the CPU they're using, body, body, bob, throughput, the works, because I felt... And I always taught, learned this even through uh, NAS Ames, that instrumentation is key if you're going to make anything right. And you did a lot of, for example, even in the PDP 11s, I had so little memory. I said, well, what's, I wrote a new memory. Uh, there was a little, I'd call Mickey Mouse memory allocation thing in the, 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 the code from uh, Xerox. It was just first fit, take whatever you got, you know. If it was if there was a 256 byte chunk, you only needed uh, 128. Okay, well, take 128 and then link over that to the spare, right? Well, they had no minimum. Ends up what happened, you end up all these little chunks of memory, memory show this, and you, and you would fragment, right? Yeah. I said, right. I, said, I said, this is stupid. So the first thing I did is said, okay, I'm going to find out what the smallest packet that ever goes through here. What is this, like 48 bytes? Okay, I'll make it 64. And if anything is less than 64 bytes, I'll just leave it tagged on. 
So, you know, you'd have 200 bytes plus 64. But when we so, released... So, it, by the way, we actually had memory fragmentation problems in iOS for many years. And I was in Cisco TAC struggling with memory fragmentation problems for many, many years. Um, <clears throat> for the same right. exact reason. You would allocate a small block and then somebody would come along and allocate a bigger block after it. And it would strand that small block. That's right. And then you keep going and you end up with all these little be small blocks. <laughs> and then somebody would deallocate that big block. And then somebody would go right in the middle of it and allocate another little block and then strand it. Everything would just yeah, get yeah, stranded. And then the other thing I said, well, you know, people, well, I did, I said, I, I did some statistics. The first fit is not always the best fit. Right. So I did, I did second best fit. And believe it or not, by looking at something that's slightly smaller, rather than getting these big chunks and breaking them up, that algorithm, I never run out of memory and I had no fragmentation. Wow. Even in a PDP-11, so that with very yeah, small yeah. amounts of memory. Well, I would run out of buffers simply because, you know, the, the other thing we did, I'll tell you why, is that we had to go from the med school all the way down to Wood is Welch Road, which is by the Stanford uh, Shopping Center. And the only thing we had was twisted pairs. We had two twisted pairs. <laughs> so we made what was called a twisted net. Okay. So you're dropping, and we, and we actually, so we did this from scratch, myself and Nick. And I noticed, and it ended up being 1.52 megabits per second. Very strange, because that's exactly what T1 lines are, you know? We did it all. <laughs> and uh, so you, get, you can imagine the kind of back pressure that you'd start getting. You know, you're going down on one side, it's 10 meg, it was to get 10 megabits set, and then you had to go up down to 256 megabits, et cetera, et cetera. And this was actually beyond this. This was in the 68,000 stuff. And we had this really funny bug that we never get CRC errors on the packets, but we would get checksum errors. We said, what the hell is going on here? Well, it ends up that Andy Bechtelstein's we took one of his three megabit boards and we actually, the guy changed, Nick changed the crystal, you know, that we kept putting experimental crystals in, but there were two crystals <laughs> and this stuff would fall in at like, I don't know, let's say uh, yeah, three megabits. One was slow, one, one, what, yeah, the one he slowed down, slowed it down, but the one on top of it was still pushing it down as, as if it was a three megabit network. So the, the stuff, the bikes would fall on top of each other. <laughs> <laughs> and we stared and we stared and finally nick goes oh god he says look there's another chip there's another timer there's another crystal in here i mean all that, that took us about three or four days to figure Most that out listening to this don't even know what a crystal is yeah <laughs> <laughs> one of those little guys you know that that that, that, that clocks through it so yeah i know i know i know yeah it's just literally a piece of crystal and a piece of in a piece of hardware that clocks so that you can That's actually right. time your circuits off of it. That's uh, right. Uh, phase lock loops for the most part. Yeah, yeah. And he had them at two different speeds in there. Well, yeah, that was very right. That was the most fun bug we ever found. In our, you know, we had to use logic analyzers and sit down and stop and catch packets because we had to extend beyond 2,000 feet for three megabits a second, and it's not supposed to. So Nick put a little power supply in each of the transistors. But if you went up too far, you'd miss, you'd be, to be too strong and went too small. You only had a one bit for a start bit. You missed the start bit. <laughs> but, you know, all this kind of tweaking went on to get the stuff to work right. And so it was really hands-on networking, and, and we both love that. All right. So anyway, back to Len. So I gave it to Len and Kirk. I didn't know Cisco existed since 1984, and I didn't know what their real plan was. Okay, so what happened, and this is a true story, yeah. In 1986, uh, Len went off and 
took the software. I'd say appropriated it in a way because I didn't I didn't see it so bad. I knew he was gonna I didn't, I didn't care particularly because it wasn't uh, you're supposed to go through the Office of Technology Licensing. It's Len, as Len says, so, you know, sometimes after you, or even Kirk, after you work on something a long time, you sort of think it's your own, right? But you did it on Stanford time. That's the only issue. Clock. Okay, so uh, the Stanford legal calls me in and says, bring your sources. I said, okay, why? I don't know. So I go in and there's this lawyer, uh, Iris Brest, I'll never forget her name, B-R-E-S-T, like in, over in uh, France, Brest. And she says, you know, I've never seen sourced code in my life, but I would like to compare them myself. But we looked at the scheduler and a little, you know, that as well. I can see the only differences here. You called this P1, P2, P3, and it's called priority one. And she started looking. Then we looked at other stuff. And Kirk, you know, you do a rewrite. He took out PUP. He took out XNS. He rewrote a, to a generalized IP routing thing, which anybody who do anything about IP could do anyway. I, but there it was. And, and, you know, he took something I had sort of a uh, network, something called uh, Internet, Internet, well, sort of interface network block that kept ARPs and all kinds of good information about each interface, you know, the output, uh, the output cues for each, uh, each given uh, interface, all that good stuff, you know, and ARP tables and timing out, all that good stuff. He broke it into two. And we looked at it and she said, well, I've never written code in my life. And I can certainly see that it's yours. I said, okay. <laughs> and I just walked after that. Okay. So what happened is that Stanford made Cisco retrofit office technology licensing. That's all, you know. And in fact, there was sort of an upper, what I hear the story is, is they were given a choice, do it or we'll kill you. <laughs> it was binary <laughs> so Len and those guys just went out and legalized it and actually the software was licensed in 1987 I have a license up there in my drawer in my file cabinet and I was a sole inventor <laughs> a physical piece of paper license oh well yeah well I got it has to be a signed license right right this is all done on paper you know, everybody signs, buddy, buddy. Not even when we do it all in blockchain now, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah well, 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 blockchain's okay. I think that's another hype, but that's another story. I think the problems with blockchain, if, if it depends that all the, data, all the data in there is actually good. But if somebody gets into the blockchain and puts some stuff in there that's not valid, and then, of course, someone stole $500 million worth of Bitcoins in Japan uh, last year or the year before. I don't remember. <laughs> they yeah. stole the root. Someone got, it and got the root. So there were a couple copies everywhere, but they got all, a bunch of money and ran. So the, but there are problems. It's interesting. Everybody's hyping it and everybody's doing it. And a friend of mine wants to do something with it with me. And I said, no, I want something creative. Anyway, <laughs> even I'm 78, we still do stuff. You know, it's, that's, that's a Merkle tree from 1979, right? Okay. Yeah, right. We all know that. Okay, so we're back to Len. Okay, so they, I, did you ever know Benji Levy? I've heard of him, but I don't know him. Benji, when he got his master's in like 1986 or whatever, he went to Cisco, 87 maybe. Well, on the Ethernet side of things, Benji did a lot of work. He'd come in, actually, he was sort of my, the only person I ever really mentored on this stuff because he wanted to add line printers so you could actually go, you, I had, we had Telnet into the thing, so you could Telnet into the tips and Telnet into the, you know, rigging routers and all that stuff. And he wanted to put line printer code in there so you could go in and then you could take the tip and the, and the modem line would go off into a line printer. and did a lot of work on the tip, really sweet guy. And so I gave him 15% of the royalties. 
But the way it really works is it's 30% to the school, 30% to the department, well, 33, and 33% to the inventor. But uh, my boss has a very, he's a good, has strong arm tactics. <laughs> $180,000 or something like that. Okay. He says, Bill, you don't want those. I said, no, 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 I don't want them. <laughs> I would have loved to have them, but I thought, but I went to the rationalization, which I thought was true. That actually, you know, this is born out of an environment, a place where I could do whatever I wanted to do. That's where, you know, the thing that I did, took over for a couple of years <clears throat> was IMAP after this. And uh, that was my conception. And I hired Mark Crispin to bang out the protocol. I wrote the servers or whatever, but I, I, I was sort of, a, what you say, the software architect and got out and got the grant money, which wasn't easy, you know, and I could hire one guy. That was Mark. There's a whole story about what, but that, that was busy for a couple of years. But anyway, now where am I? I moved back. Okay, so we're back, blah, 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 1987. Yeah, Benji wrote all this tip stuff. And so it's 30, 33% to the school, 33% to the department, 33% to me. So I sat there and I said, what can I do with it? And he says, oh, you can buy stuff for you. Know, I bought a chair for my office, <laughs> et cetera. You, you know, not, not cool. But I was doing a project a network, a very interesting network called Doctor Network with DEC, where I didn't like the simple network management protocol. I looked, I went to, I went to, um, what is that uh, big networking um, conference I hold every year now? It's going out, going out of, I don't know, it's gotten way out of sight. It's still out there. Interop. Interop. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in fact, whenever I go to Interop, Interop, and I go to Cisco booths. Kirk would always say, here's Bill. He did all, he invented all this, right? <laughs> but, son, but, but Cisco never would validate me, right? So the story continues, the Cisco story. Okay, I'll get, I'll, I'll, okay. So everything was cool. I, you know, it was out there. But what happened is my, uh, I have something else I want to talk about. My, my grant went away when DEC went bankrupt. I didn't have a salary. Son, Tom says, well, there's $180,000 in there. We can take care of you. <laughs> I wasn't making that much. They didn't pay people at Stanford that much. But then again, I got onto other projects after that. And uh, actually, I was I was only they have a they have a a ranking or a salary level or a title that at that time uh, it doesn't sound very good. Uh, system special software system specialist. I was the only one at Stanford, but actually made me an adjunct professor. Oh. And they called, and they and they actually called me, the the SWAT team. What <laughs> I did is I'd work with PhD students in the medical school to help them finish their theses. And I learned a lot about AI and and that kind of stuff. But also, a lot of PhD students aren't very good software engineers, right? One guy thought, well, TCP is like writing to a file. I just write and I go back and I keep writing and I keep writing. You know, and within the TCP, it didn't have any protocol. Packets could drop, all kinds of stuff, you know, body, body, body. <laughs> he just kept writing. <laughs> he says, why is it not working sometimes? Why is it working sometimes? I said, well, you know, you need a little protocol. Here it comes, like FTP. I'm sending this many bytes. Here it comes. I'm sending this many bytes. I did a lot of that stuff, helped people do many, many things. Just to, the worst nightmare of it all was a prologue program of 100,000 lines. I don't know if you ever programmed a prologue, but it is living hell. <sighs> it's all, the debugging is by backtracing. You go back, 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 back. And even to get out text 
uh, it was almost impossible. This guy wrote 100,000 lines, then ends up, he gets in Canada, had visa problems, he couldn't come back, and they said, it's not working, can you fix it? 100,000 lines of just miserable code. Well, I did. Uh, but I was thought, thinking very seriously about leaving the cup separate. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so anyway, uh, you know, all that worked out. Uh, then I then I actually did leave Stanford, and I went to Sun. The reason I left, I did think the grant would be going away because we were the biggest grant at Stanford—a couple million a year. Okay, quite a bit, almost, I guess, a couple million a year. And we were a national resource for AI and medicine, but now with with the advent of Suns and Next Machines and Macintoshes, Sun servers, et cetera, et cetera, Cisco routers everywhere, Uh, people could be their own resource. And then they could communicate and use the system to email and all of this good stuff. And so the the grant did uh, go away in 96. I left in June of 94 and um, went off to... uh, Son to do some fun stuff, not necessarily lacking controversy. I always seem to throw myself into some kind of strange situation because I found out at Sun, it wasn't the best engineering that won. It was a politically correct engineering. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the real engineering world now. And I always got stuck with projects that some other planet hated or something like that's our charter i don't care i said it's not me talk to my vice president i'm only doing what that guy says right but it was true people would fight i mean literally get in battles i couldn't believe it i said whoa uh yeah anyway so so going back to the router i mean why did you actually do the router in the first place you said for pup right so you actually did well, doing- but we, but it was done in the first place because we needed a way we had ethernet and we could pull the cables but we needed a way to connect various buildings because cables are only 2,000 feet and you can't repeat worth a damn because although it reshapes, you lose signals. Right. Well, not only that, but just because of the way Ethernet works, you can't see what's going on too far away. So you actually have to terminate the signal at layer two somehow. uh, You terminate it. And the other thing is, of course, is it isolates local traffic, right? Right. And it also gives you administrative abilities to go in and say, I don't want any of this stuff coming through here, et cetera, et cetera. So right? all the same reasons you should not be using stretch layer two today. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you know, exactly. And I saw the advantages of that right away. And I said, good creep, you know. And uh, so uh, somebody, well, there was a meeting actually in about 1981 at the computer science department because there was a sort of a router over there Jeff Mogul did. It was, on, I don't know, it was in Mesa on some little system, it may have been, it may have been on Alpha, I don't know. It didn't exactly do right. And uh, so he said, well, someone has to volunteer to do the Stanford routers. And, uh, and I said, I'd love to I'll take mine and put them all over Stanford. And they said, you got it. No graduate student want to do that. And I'd like that kind of challenge. And so they know we needed them and they knew, you, we knew, given even what was happening with these few buildings, that this stuff was going to explode at Stanford. Because, you know, three megabits a second is not great. You know, you get, I don't know, you get yeah. 30K bits, bytes per second file transfer. But we need even do that. 10 megabits is coming down the line. And I always learned about engineering. If you can do it faster, it'll happen. Once it's discovered, this has goes off to flash memory. When I worked and did some stuff with Sun, and it had to do with uh, wireless stuff. We went to Samsung in 2000. They said, oh, we have 16 megabytes of flash. I said, here it comes. Gigabytes will be down the pipe, you know. 
that's how it works, right? Engineers <laughs> love it and they do it. And so the routings were needed. Routers were something that was needed. I decided to write an OS, do a decent thing. We could plug Ethernet to software into it, anything else, because that's all, you know, it's a pluggable thingy. And it never crashed. Never. Oh, well, it did when I worked for Cisco. Mine never crashed. <laughs> Because I knew that every logical path was was absolutely executed, and it was a big struggle to get it that way. I had a guy at Rutgers, Rutgers, uh, who was a, the one of the Rutgers in the University of Chicago also used it, and he said, "This is amazing. It never crashes. It runs and runs and runs." I said, "Well, after five years of work, I would hope so." <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I also designed it in nice layers. And if you kept it layer, you know, had communication paths between each layers, but they couldn't step on each other. So if there was a bug, it was isolated someplace, you know, this guy screwed up and this guy down here, it was taken and it had enough sense. And so by isolating things like that, you could debug it. And, you know, finally got so we could actually have debuggers, which actually never really used much in those things. I think I, I even on the three megabit, 10 mega stuff, I, uh, I had a guy, Jean Vizades, come in and he is a summer student for Berkeley and had him do a memory dump thing. Because I preferred memory dumps. I could take a look, bam, that's the problem, right? And uh, I worked on optimization, making it work faster, putting instrumentation in there, and you know, that kind of stuff. And ultimately what happened, of course, and this is the final story, it's around 2000. You know, I was working for Sun over somewhere over in Cupertino. I was working, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 okay. I, I ended up being a CTO of... Um, Juxta, which is the uh, first open source peer-to-peer -peer thing, and did some stuff in Mobile. I was over there. And this article comes out in the Chronicle. Sandy Lerner and Len Bozick were in love, and so they pulled cables and invented routers and did all this stuff. And I, <laughs> I, 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 I said, I almost vomited on my desk at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went over and looked at the website. I couldn't believe it. Well, there's a guy named Ed Fagenbaum who's a... Uh, God, uh, you know, he's sort of the godfather of uh, AI. He's a you know, National Academy engineer, Professor Emeritus, and he was our principal investigator. And he saw this and he says, we'll stop it. <laughs> and then uh, John Kerry, who's a Pulitzer Prize uh, reporter for the San Jose Mercury News, shows up in my office. He says, well, what really happened? I told him this story. And he says, I see. And then, boom, it's there, front page Sunday, business, Wall Street Journal, blah, 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 blah. Cisco takes all that stuff off their website, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, you know, then it gets out there, and I, and I say, cool, I did it. That's all I care. I don't want these people making up these uh, fantasies. You know, Sandy Lerner, I couldn't imagine her when she did her grunge fingernail polish. Pulling cables. Oh, God, what a joke. She was a, an administrator for the business school, which, said, you know, she did the admin work, secretary, you know, to be honest. And uh, I said, boy, those guys. <laughs> Never heard from Len since then, though, so I don't know. But. <laughs> Wow. And I, I, I never, I, uh, you, did you know, uh, what's his name? John, is it John Satz? Satz. Mm -mm, that one doesn't Greg, sound Greg Satz, Greg Satz, Greg Satz. He was one of the, the guys who went over and worked in uh, the first offices off of Willow Road. And he's best friends with the guy who lives behind me here. And he one day knocked on my door and we had the front door. And little, put out a little weight. I didn't quite recognize him at first, but I'm about the same thing. <laughs> but he's really a sweet guy. You know, good people were there. And there was a little bit of 
thievery that went on in the beginning that it got ironed out. And I was actually pretty proud of it because, you know, it did help drive the Internet. Yeah. Those routers uh, were the routers. And I tell people, well, you can't put anything on the network without hitting my intellectual DNA. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now that you look back, what would you do differently about your first router? Differently? Uh, well, the first one, the, the little guy, the PDP-1105, there's not a lot that one can do in 56K bytes, right? It just squeeze it in, do all that optimization for compilers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I don't think there's, there were some projects I wanted to start, but then my boss would say, no, you know, we don't reinvent the whisk because we knew Cisco was having, they did, they booted, a, they booted, a, they booted two files instead of one file. And I left, a, I had different, different routers. I had different, configuration, get different builds. And so, but I had that with Bootpy, that was not a problem. And mm -hmm. Cisco actually booted uh, some little guy that would go out and boot the right router for them and they didn't have to worry about that. I remember there was a double a double boot there. And I thought, well, I could do that. He says, no, you can't. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, and uh, I was gonna put TCP IP in there and he says, no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it would have been an interesting thing to do, but knowing it's coming down the pipe, and I did much more interesting stuff, you know, the IMAP work, uh, just uh, some other stuff through the late set, late 80s, uh, Dr. Network, which died, and then SWAT team guy, and until I went over to Sun. And, I mean, I, I, the Sun was interesting because I actually what I was doing there had to do with uh, IMAP, and they I always get into a project to get in, it got into life ultimately for political reasons, as usual. But they would pay me, they say, okay, we want a disconnected IMAP client because they they disconnected uh, Solaris 2.4 and they wanted to be able to run disconnected. But well, it didn't exist. I said, I can do that. He said, how long did it take you? Three weeks. How much you want? 25,000. No problem. I said, whoa. Then I did another project. 25,000. No problem. Built fences, gates around our house. We have almost an acre here, you know. I said, no, Wow. And then, and then a guy quit uh, in that in the project. It was actually a little Sun laptop called the Gypsy or the Spark Station Voyager. Uh, Carl Jacob, who's now a multimillionaire, that's why he quit. Many many startups. And he's only about in his forties. Sweet guy. And they asked me if I would take his job and come in and do this, and essentially almost doubled my salary and whatever. And I said, well, you know, I've never been in a business before. I had way back in the beginning. And uh, so I did that. I just jumped, jumped ship. That's cool. And went over there. Yeah, and uh, did a lot of stuff. But you know, I, I don't think there's much that I could could have done differently. I would have liked to have done the double boot thing, but I didn't. I just too many new things were drawing me away from it. But I would do things like you know the RPC thing because we really needed that. We only could afford, believe it or not, one Sun server at the time, and that was way up in the machine room and down there at Welsh Road over the twisted net, body, 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 body. So, um, so that, you know, that kind of stuff I enjoy. I enjoy digging into things and doing new and interesting things. Otherwise, I've, I've left them to stop a lot of projects because I just got bored with them. So I think it's really interesting, Gorm, you know, that you did the wire wrap part and you actually had to dig into the Ethernet and stuff like that. It's really cool that yeah, you know, that, way, way back is, you know, even when I got into networking, we had Ethernet chipsets. So, you know, going back even that far. Yeah, well, well, Nick, Nick did the, uh, 
did the wire wrap, and I think we got some we got some Ethernet boards from somewhere else. So then, of course, after the, that's just for the uh, little uh, you know PDP eleven oh five. Then we had three com boards, Interland boards. All of these boards started being Ford technology boards, chipsets. Right when we got to the, the MC sixty eight thousand one, everything was chipset. After that, didn't have to worry about it, and people would license uh, the, the essentially licensed uh, Andy's uh, boards. It, you know, technology, and then go off and build them. That's cool. So, you know, it really worked out quite beautifully that way. Because, you know, it was very nice. You could ride a dryer and the thing would work and you didn't have to worry about it. Yep. If there's a problem, you could just call those guys and come up, give you those days, they just give you another one. <laughs> People were more decent in those days. Well, it's cool. Well, thanks for coming on. I think we'll wrap up there. Um, we've got to the end of that story. Maybe we'll have you back on to talk about IMAP. Uh, that might be kind of cool. Uh, yeah, we, it has an interesting derivation, actually. And yeah. I, I would enjoy that. Yeah, that's cool. Great. Okay. All right, well, thanks for coming on. And for everybody listening, oh, well, I don't think you blog or anything, right, Bill? I think you're pretty I, quiet. And, yeah. Yeah, I was always very quiet. I mean, people had never even heard of me. You know, they heard all of a sudden this router stuff hits because I, I tend not to toot my own horn very much. I just <laughs> dig in and have fun. That was, I mean, I've always had a fun job, every darn one. I didn't you know. And uh, that would absorb me. And I didn't care about the publicity too much. That's cool. That's the way engineering yeah. should be. So, Donald, right. you're you're on Twitter, right? Yeah, you can find me at me, not you, Sharp. Okay. You can always find me at rule11.tech and find me at the Network Collective. So, thanks for watching this episode of the Network Collective History of Networking. And join us next time for more really cool stuff as we dig around in the wiring closet and find some more skeletons. <laughs>